0: Hello and welcome to this podcast series on excellence featuring the 2016 Missouri Honor Medalists. I'm Jim Flink, Assistant Professor of Strategic Communication at the Missouri School of Journalism. The Missouri School of Journalism has awarded the Missouri Honor Medal for Distinguished Service since 1930. Medalists are selected by the faculty of the school on the basis of lifetime or superior achievement for distinguished service performed in such lines of journalistic endeavor as shall be selected each year for consideration. Past recipients include Tom Brokaw, Christiane Amanpour, Sir Winston Churchill, Gloria Steinem, Deborah Howell, David Granger, and Gordon Parks, among others. This year, we're focusing on the common denominator each recipient holds, that of excellence. We're joined in this segment by St. Louis Post Dispatch columnist Tony Messenger. Tony was born in Littleton, Colorado, attended the University of Loyola, Chicago. While living in Chicago, he was inspired by Chicago Tribune columnist Mike Royko. Messenger moved to Missouri in 1999, worked for the Columbia Daily Tribune from 1999 to 2006 as a Metro columnist and city editor. From there, he moved to Springfield, where he worked for the Springfield News Leader from 2006 to 2008 as the editorial page editor. In 2008, Messenger started writing for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch as a capital correspondent and political com- columnist in Jefferson City. He later joined the editorial page as writer in 2011, served as editorial page editor from 2012 until September of 2015, and now serves as a columnist on the paper's Metro Beat. He's been multi-award winning in his role, including he was a finalist as a 2015 Pulitzer Prize competition for editorials on the protest in Ferguson. Tony, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate having you. Thanks for having me, Jim. Good to be here. So let's let's talk a little bit about excellence in journalism. Certainly, uh, the field changing a lot, especially in the uh, in the traditional, shall we say, newspaper landscape. Um, let's talk about sort of the qualities that you perceive as defining excellence in content now in the newspaper spectrum.
1: Well, I'm, I'm not sure the qualities of excellence have changed as our digital landscape has changed. It's it's still striving for truth, uh, working hard to get to the bottom of that truth and Providing as comprehensive and truthful and, and entertaining opinionated reports as you possibly can. Uh, to me, the, the challenge of the digital landscape hasn't really changed how we as journalists view trying to strive to be our best.
0: You know, it's really interesting. A lot of people um, don't discern, I, th- I think, in the public, the difference between opinion writers or columnists and, and you know, the Daily Fair, the, the, the news of the day. Do you get that a lot in terms of people talking with you about content?
1: You know, I used to get it a lot more as the editorial page editor. I, I found that particularly in the digital world where you're engaging with readers in a uh, in a fashion different than the traditional print model, that people would often question, why are you being opinionated? Why is this in my newspaper? Why, why are you sharing your opinions on this matter? I don't get it quite as much as a metro columnist because the kind of column that I write is a reported column, and so where my input is offered, uh, it's usually backed up by reporting in a way that that people understand. They mm-hmm. they. They get to view and, and, and understand a part of who I am as I'm writing. Uh, and I think readers appreciate that in a column format.
0: The skills required to do the job that you, uh, that you do on a daily basis are evolving. And, and the last time you and I had a chance to visit, it was um, sort of right in the aftermath of Ferguson uh, that you covered a great deal. And, and you were able to test a lot of skills in a lot of different ways. So let's talk a little bit about excellence as regards the Ferguson coverage as part of that and then sort of how you have to sort of speed towards excellence in areas where you may not even feel so excellent yourself in terms
1: of trying to cover a story like that. Sure. You know, one of the things that we all found in covering Ferguson on the street is that the digital motives of, of telling a story were helpful to us and and they made a difference in how that story was presented to the public. There I was as an editorial page editor walking the streets of West Florissant one night, and I found that my notebook was in my pocket, and my phone was out, and I was videotaping. And the little vines, the little short video snippets were powerful, and they moved quickly on social media, and they told the story in real time. And allowing yourself to use that video as your primary note-taking tool connected you with the story in a different way. And so while those of us who have been in uh, the old school, so to speak, and still like to use an old reporter's mm-hmm. notebook and, and, and pen and paper, and, and I still use that in almost any interview, the digital tool was, was an important part of how we told that story.
0: And Ferguson was such a monumental story on so many levels, in part because of the very technology that you're talking about. And I know that um, from a strategic standpoint uh, within your newsroom, the story itself began to, in effect, shape the newsroom and how it looked at big events, um, particularly when you had such powerful visual images. Can you talk a little bit about maybe... Um, how that story and the breadth and the depth of that story helped to maybe uh, evolve your newsroom.
1: Well, it was it was such a powerful visual story. Our our photographers uh, and the video that our reporters and photographers took so often drove the daily narrative and became the the way in which people were were viewing the story. I mean, even those of us who are journalists in St. Louis often found ourselves at night watching cable TV if we weren't out in the field, learning about what was going on in our community by the images that we were seeing live. And so it was one of those stories that changed. And, And we've seen that over the last two years now as the story of, of police brutality and police shootings has become such a forefront issue in America's consciousness, it's the video often shot by bystanders that creates the story and that drives the narrative. And so that's one of the things that has just changed how we how we do our work, how we go about our daily business of, of being journalists, not only in terms of recognizing the importance of visual media in today's storytelling, but then the sharing of that media on social media and the using of that social media to connect with communities in a way that we never did before. I have a whole group of folks that I follow and that follow me on Twitter now that some of them are in St. Louis, some of them are not. But... Many of them are people of color that I might not have connected with outside of my traditional uh, uh, social networks, if not for Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and the way the Ferguson story was told. While some of us who are sort of old school originally pushed back on the idea of social media, that's one of those areas that I think we have to understand if we're going to be excellent in our field that, There's an opportunity there to use social media to connect to communities that otherwise are sometimes underrepresented in the newspaper world. Well, and maybe to take that one step further,
0: because I do hear people say because of the ephemeral nature of um, of social media and also because of the engagement numbers that tend to go along with visual and video content that that maybe they lament the fact that long-form journalism might be suffering. And and I always kind of caution against that and say, no, really good content resonates. Do you find that to be
1: the case? Oh, I find that to be true, and, and I track my work on social media, using the various analytic tools, which of my work resonates both in social media and then using social media brings people back to our website. And during Ferguson, the series of editorials that we wrote were really long. Mm-hmm. We, we chose to write an analysis from the street that nobody else in the country was, was really doing, this sort of long form look at what What you're seeing in the street in terms of protest, what does it really mean in our community? What are the real changes that have to take place in our community to address some of these issues of poverty and race? And we chose to do that in long-form editorials, 1,000-word editorials, 1,200-word editorials. And those pieces and the columns that I continue to write on that topic that are often seven to 800 to 900 words do incredibly well – when you're sharing them in a social media context to a community that really wants to eat up that sort of content. And so I would push back on that. I think actually the social media world opens up long-form journalism to a bigger audience often than you're going to get just in the print. Nonetheless, on the counterpoint,
0: are you at all concerned that because um, because anyone can, in effect, as you pointed out earlier, gather information that's sort of a first-hand account and, in effect, be on par with content distribution with professional journalists? Are you at all concerned about the present landscape, or do you have an idea of where the landscape might be leading with regards to context? Because context with regards to really big issues like this is something that newspapers, news organizations used to sort of have, um, you know, sole domain over, right? And now
1: it may be diluted. It, it is diluted, and, it's, and it can be an issue, and it can be an issue for our field. Uh, we are constantly reminding ourselves in in the journalism field every time one of these breaking stories happens to calm down, to slow down, to make sure that we're being very careful in terms of accurate information that we're putting out there, that we're being careful in terms of what we're retweeting so that we know that the original source material is, is good and accurate. And even when you're putting out information that came from direct sourcing in the field, often that information is wrong. And then you have to quickly, you know, this stuff spreads like wildfire. And so we spend we spend some time as journalists debunking things today that maybe 10 years ago, we wouldn't have had to debunk because they never would have grabbed a foothold. So that's an issue. I tend to try to look at these things in, in trend lines. And I, and I think that over time, through algorithms, through analytics, through good professional work by journalists and mainstream publications. We are going to find a way to leverage the use of social media so that readers can discern through various technology that I don't understand that maybe doesn't (laughs) exist yet, which of this information is really valuable for them to read and what might just be stuff that's out there, put out there by folks for partisan reasons or, or, or whatever else. It is an issue and yet it's it's an opportunity because we're seeing citizen journalists out there produce important, uh, valuable images and content that are helping to drive coverage sometimes.
0: And do you think that uh, news organizations as a whole are really um, harnessing that in terms of sort of the ecosystem of content, that, that whole citizen journalism thing, adequately right now to make sure that contextualization continues to happen.
1: I think that's probably an area where we all struggle and there are probably some folks who who do a better job of that than others it's an area that we struggle because we don't have the staff resources to dedicate to okay you go gather this this citizen information and then you still have to vet it you still have to to have a professional journalist do what professional journalists do track the information down Uh, if it came from your mother still try to determine whether or not it's true and accurate and that sort of thing. And so it takes time. What journalism often is, is time, the, the time and effort that it takes to get to the truth, to get to the most accurate representation of the truth as it exists on this deadline uh, that we have. And our deadlines are becoming tighter and tighter because of the 24-hour news cycle. And so that's a concern, uh, and that's an area that we have to continue to try to focus with and struggle. Over.
0: On the issue of of time efficiency, effectiveness. We've all seen that newsrooms, and particularly newspaper newsrooms, have been just uh, so hard hit over the last decade in terms of workforce and and in terms of the allocation of resources and the more and more judicious allocation. With the emergence of bot news writing and all those kinds of things, do you think that that actually might somehow create an opportunity for better journalism with people more focused on efficient and effective storytelling,
1: you know, I, I look at the 2016 election cycle, which is one of the wildest cycles that we've ever had, in which we have uh, one party in particular, the Republican Party, questioning itself over how did mainstream Republicans end up with a candidate, Donald Trump, who is so outside the norm, who is found to be really lacking in the honesty department on a daily basis, and. You're starting to see a lot of Republicans look at this network of right wing journalism sites that they have set up for a partisan purpose over the past several years and say, wait a minute, our right wing journalism you know, network that we set up failed us because they weren't telling the truth. And we ended up with with Donald Trump. And, and I look at that in a microcosm of 2016. And, and try to spread it out over you know, the time that we don't have yet and, and, and think of how historians are gonna look at this. And I'd like to think it's the beginning of a pendulum turning where we recognize, wait a minute, we spent many, many years beating up the mainstream media because we thought it was gonna help us in a partisan fashion and, and in the end it destroyed us because we need the mainstream media to get out there and tell us the truth, even when we don't like that truth. And so I'd like to think that maybe this is the beginning of the pendulum turning where we recognize as a country, our democracy needs good journalism and accurate journalism and people that are paid to work really hard at trying to discern the truth. And even people like me, columnists who are paid to some degree for their bias, but show their bias in a way that that also has reporting behind it so that readers can make a fair judgment as to where those opinions are coming from. I'd like to think that maybe 2016 is that year where the pendulum turns back and we recognize as a nation how valuable uh, daily journalism is and hopefully we find a way to reinvest in these pillars of democracy. I've been, I've been musing over this myself that
0: uh, bureaucratic things like the Fairness Doctrine, which you'll remember, but a lot of people today don't even understand what that was, which was diluted um, in the 80s and the 90s and then pretty much done away with, Th- those kinds of bureaucratic checks and balances sometimes are valuable in, in terms of the overall sort of macro impact of media on society.
1: Well, it's interesting that the Fairness Doctrine story took a, took a different turn again this year to go back to this strange political year we have. A few weeks ago, we had uh, those on the right of the political spectrum really angry with Facebook because they thought, I don't think it was accurate, but they thought based on some initial news reports that Facebook was using an algorithm that somehow uh, put conservative news below allegedly liberal news. And folks on the right were just confounded and upset and calling for congressional hearings. And a lot of us said, wait a minute, you're the same people who said that the Fairness Doctrine needed to go away, that the Fairness Doctrine was, was government getting in the way of, of journalists just doing their job. And so it's interesting how that debate came back around uh, on a political cycle when it was folks on one side or the other who thought that they were the ones being discriminated against. It, it just goes to show that balanced professional journalism is so needed in our country. And I hope the pendulum continues to swing back to that where you know readers and citizens understand, you know what, I don't need to get all of my news from a partisan source. I'd like to have that one place where I can know that, that I may not agree with everything in the daily newspaper, but I know the journalists that, that are paid to, to produce it every day uh, are doing their best to get to the bottom of whatever this particular story is. And most of those stories have very little to do with partisan politics. And they're just about you know the daily lives in our communities. And it's harder to tell those stories with reduced staff sizes and smaller investment made in the product. Excellence back to the subject and
0: to the the, um, the idea of sort of the newspaper megaphone. Um, certainly St. Louis has always been a very um, uh, noteworthy city on, an, on a number of levels. Certainly Ferguson redefined that at the beginning of the discussion about police brutality that you mentioned earlier. Excellence as regards the work that you do going forward. Um, what are you going to be focusing on uh, as regards this
1: discussion? One of the reasons that I made the change from being editorial page editor to being the Metro columnist is to find a way to take those stories that I was working on for two years host ferguson on issues of division in the St. Louis community both related to race and geographic and political division and in this intense income inequality and poverty situation that we have in our community that holds us back. I wanted to take the, the editorial issues that I was writing about at sort of a 60,000 foot level and bring them down to earth. And I spend a lot of time now walking communities in St. Louis, north, south, west, uh, across the river in Illinois, and meeting real people who are dealing with these issues on a daily basis and trying to tell their stories in a way that helps move the ball forward so that we as a community can get over some of those root causes of the division that, that, that just brewed up into the street in, in Ferguson. And they're about so much more than police brutality. And so that's one of the things that I'm trying to focus on as a, as a columnist and the way to bring those stories to light and to take them from a theoretical to a practical is to just find those those real folks who live in the community, who live in the Greaterville, who live in Cool Valley, who live down in Gravoy Park, who are dealing with these sorts of police issues and poverty issues on a daily basis and bring those to light and, and, and hopefully try to find the the policy prescriptions that can help move this community forward and get over some of its historic division.
0: We've been talking with St. Louis Post-Dispatch columnist Tony Messenger, one of the recipients of the 2016 Missouri Honor Medal, which will be awarded this fall at the University of Missouri School of Journalism. Thanks for joining us, Tony, and thank you to you for joining us in this podcast series on excellence. I'm Jim Flink, Assistant Professor of Strategic Communication at the Missouri School of Journalism.